Thanks for joining us. You know, it's been a little while since we uh, had the had a breakfast, <laughs> and it's been even longer since we had a lesson because I think our last breakfast was at Hilltop and we didn't have a lesson. So uh, uh, you might have forgotten what we're talking about. <laughs> I had to look it up. Uh, so we did start this series called Five Lies, uh, with the subtitle Schemes of the Devil in the Modern World. Um, <clears throat> I think we, we've done two lessons, because uh, when I looked at the handouts, you know, that's what I figured out. And this third lesson is really the second half of the second lesson that we didn't get to last time. Um, so I wanted to review a little bit. In the first session, we just sort of named these five lies, uh, these claims that the world uh, makes uh, that we find false. And, uh, you know, when we talk about schemes of the devil, I had an interesting conversation yesterday someone who was, you know, contemplating the concept of spiritual warfare and, you know, the idea that there's demons in the world and all of that. And uh, I think one of the interesting features of that conversation is we have this tendency to, to go to extremes, to deny the existence of personal spiritual beings like angels and demons, or to go to the other extreme and think they're the most important thing that we need to think about. And so there's a demon everywhere. And we need to address that, confront that directly. I am. I am. And it looks like it's running. Yes, thank you. Uh, <clears throat> Well, I think to be biblical about that, we would have to say, well, we certainly don't want to deny the reality of personal spiritual beings, angels and demons. The Bible is pretty clear about that. I think also we would want to say something like uh, the, the, the three enemies of the Christian life, the world, the flesh, and the devil, are always present. And uh, the scripture describes Satan as the ruler of the world. So the, there's a personal, spiritual uh, being that is always operating in whatever environment we're operating in. So I, w I would maybe say this in a clever way like this. There is a demon under every rock. But maybe that's not so worrisome for a person who is in Christ. Uh, we would want to say, biblically, Satan is active in the world. He's an active enemy. He is constantly seeking to destroy humanity uh, and to uh, hamper true spiritual life in Christ. Uh, well, what we're talking about in this course, though, is what form does that take in the modern world that we live in? Um, and so what we have in these five lies are five things that are common beliefs in the modern age. And so I just wanted to review those, and then today we're going to talk about, well, what is our, in this course, what's our basic approach for dealing with these things? And what we're going to discover is our basic approach for dealing with these things is not to personally confront demons. Though 
That does occur from time to time. But our basic approach is uh, the approach of grace and truth. In other words, our arena of operating in the realm of spiritual warfare is the arena of human society. So the question is not how will I address a demon, but how will I address another person? And that is the important factor for us. Now I recognize when I'm addressing a person that that person is not my enemy. This is what we read in Ephesians chapter 6. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our enemy is not the human being that we're dealing with. They're the, they are the ground we're fighting over. They are not the enemy we're fighting. But when we, when we engage in this spiritual warfare, our place of engagement is in our relationships with other people. So it's actually quite rare, I believe, that we would need to personally confront uh, an angel or demon uh, and address them directly, as in like when Jesus cast demons out and commanded them to depart or whatever. I think that's that activity is rarely the point of contact for us. It could be. We wouldn't want to say that's impossible because we have a record of it in the Scripture. What we don't have in the Scripture is something like instructions about how to go about it. And if it were, if, if it were something we were going to need to do on a regular basis, I think we might expect the Apostle Paul in one of these many letters he wrote to the church to say, now, I've noticed you all are not handling the demons properly, so let me tell you what's going on with that. We just don't find that in the Bible. And so I personally regard that direct confrontational spiritual warfare to be uh, something that's unlikely that we would need to engage in. Not, not impossible, but unlikely. <clears throat> well, anyway, that was a big, long detour from what we're talking about. These are the, the five areas, five beliefs that we find in the modern world that I think are deceptions that have a goal. You might ask the question, what would be the devil's goal in the world today? Uh, somebody said the devil's main goal in the world today is to keep anyone from believing that there is such a thing as the devil. And I think that's certainly one of his goals. He denies supernatural things. Okay. <clears throat> but I'm not sure that's the main goal. I think the main goal is what has always been the main goal of the devil which is to separate humanity from God. That has always been the devil's goal because humanity separated from God is destroyed because humanity is created to live in fellowship with God. In fact, to find life in that fellowship, to be alive means to be in fellowship with God. And so if the devil is setting out to destroy our life, how does he go about it? He, call, he convinces us to turn our, away from God, to alienate ourselves from God. And as we look at these five lies, you can see that objective behind every one of them. <clears throat> in fact, these are, in one sense, five different ways to say that to say, God doesn't matter to you. You don't need God. That's kind of what he said to Adam and Eve, right? You don't need God. You can operate on your own and be just fine. Uh, so, what are the five lies? Well, we better do this quickly because we're going to have trouble getting to the point of today's lesson otherwise. Five lies are this. Number one, the dice roll themselves. This is not on the handout. This is on the handout from four months ago or whenever that was. The dice roll themselves. 
Everything is the product of time and chance. The world happens by accident, including you. You're you and all that we see here, everything we observe is a product of time and chance. <clears throat> uh, this is a statement of basically uh, naturalism, materialistic naturalism, which means the material world is the only thing. The material universe, the physical space, that's all. That's all everything is. <clears throat> now, some uh, people in this area of study we call cosmology, they might notice and go ahead and acknowledge that something must exist eternally. If anything exists, something must exist eternally. That's uh, almost a philosophical tautology. Like there's, if, if things happen, if things exist because they were caused by other things, something just exists, period. And that's what we mean by eternal. Something is self-existing. There must be at least one self-existing thing, or there can be nothing. Because something cannot come from nothing. Uh, well, in the biblical Christian point of view, what is that self-existent thing? That self-existent thing is a personal God. A three-personal God, in fact. Uh, we, we, our claim is that that triune God is the eternal thing. Well, the material naturalist must claim that the material universe itself is the self-existent thing. So, okay, those are your options. But if I'm, uh, if I'm operating from that naturalistic, uh, worldview, then I'm making this claim the dice roll themselves. All existence is only the product of time and chance. I'm going to have to take less time on the remaining four lies. The second one is your guess is as good as mine. And this is a way of saying truth is a, is a subjective matter. Uh, each of us has his or her own truth that is valid for him or her. Now, certainly things are true for me that are not true for you. That's not what we mean. What we're saying in this uh, lie is there's no reason to believe anything is objectively true so that it's uh, true for everyone in every situation. There's no, at least we might say there's no access to objective knowledge. Uh, now, this is also just a philosophical claim that today, in what we call the postmodern age, is rampant. Something can be true for you and not true for me. Uh, well, this is not compatible with any biblical concept of God. <clears throat> uh, uh, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, God except through me. Well, that's a hard claim. Uh, Christian, biblical Christianity makes the hard claim that the world is not the product of time and chance, but is the creation of a personal God. Okay, so that's true. And if it's true, it's just as true for you as it is for me. It's just true. Uh, and certain laws of nature we would put in this category, you know, gravity. Uh, well, gravity exerts the same force on my body as it exerts on your body. It's just true. Uh, so uh, sometimes this argument revolves around how good is our access or our capacity to perceive the truth, but it tends to devolve these days into 
something like, well, okay, you can believe that and I'll believe this. They're completely incompatible. In fact, this can happen within one person who can believe this and this and they're incompatible. Uh, but we're, we've gotten very loose with what we think of as truth. Uh, the third lie is God is everyone's friend. I think the biblical point of view would have to say God is everyone's creator. God is everyone's Lord. God is everyone's judge. Friend might be on the list. What do you think? Is God everyone's friend? I'm not so sure. <clears throat> God is available to be everyone's friend. <laughs> uh, so anyway, people are, this idea though is basically, people are basically good. And God likes them. God's not unhappy with anyone. Hell is just for Hitler and Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden and whoever else are our big evil enemies in the world today. That's who hell is for, but I'm nowhere near as bad as those guys, so God won't judge me. God's like everyone's nice grandfather. Um, there's a, a summary statement for this kind of idea these days. It's called moral therapeutic deism. Wow, that was a big statement. Moral therapy. Basically, this is the religion of the modern world to whatever degree we care to have religion. If we think of God, we think of God as a sort of deistic God who sort of puts things in place, who wants you to do well, who wants to help you to do well. And so God serves in this sort of master therapist role in your life. And as long as you're pretty nice, God's okay with you. And by the way, feel free to define nice for yourself. God is not a lawgiver or a judge in that way of thinking. But I think a biblical understanding of God must include God is a lawgiver and the judge of the laws he gives. And does not hesitate to punish sin. Uh, okay, number, I said I was going to go faster and I forgot. Number four, you got to please yourself. The main thing you need to do is be yourself. Be yourself, be true to yourself, and esteem yourself. That's really all the, that's the point. You should be who you are. And by the way, nobody's giving you any good advice about how to figure out who you are. Because who you are is not like a eternal self-existent thing. So these days, how does this, this devolves into, well, invent yourself. Be whoever you want to be. And you think it up. And as long as you're true to that, except you can't be true to that because that isn't solid. You're making it up. This is, by the way, where the philosophy of existentialism gets you. It values authenticity, but it has no source for authenticity. And so, it is simply each individual person inventing him or herself for him or herself and then be true to that. Uh, so this is, this, by the way, this value is, is very highly exalted in Western culture these days. And, of course, people are not encouraged to think about it that carefully. 
The fifth lie is there's no way out. That this says life is whatever you make of it, and then you die. In other words, there's if if I'm a materialist and a naturalist, then death is the end. So those are the five things, and we're going to take a whole, at least one session on each one of these five things. But today, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to talk about well, what's our basic approach for handling these things as Bible-believing Christians with a biblical view of the world. What's our general approach in dealing with or addressing these beliefs or the people who hold to these beliefs? By the way, most people hold to these beliefs and have not given it a lot of careful thought. I'm going to say that again. That was two things I just said. Most people hold to these beliefs. I think if you took a poll in church about these beliefs, most people hold to these beliefs to one degree or another. And they hold to these beliefs without having given it much careful thought. These beliefs don't really stand up to a lot of careful thinking. Uh, so, you know, it shouldn't surprise us. But this is, uh, these things, and this isn't something you should regard as a comprehensive list, but these things are widely held and culturally held. In other words, we grow up in a world that believes this way, that has this kind of view of the universe. Uh, so how do we handle it? as a Bible-believing Christian? Well, I want to say we have two basic approaches, and the approach is grace and truth. Grace and truth. You know, Jesus is described in the New Testament as full of grace and truth. And for us, this might seem kind of tricky because we think of grace as sort of not true. And we think of truth as kind of ungracious. Because if I tell you the truth, that's going to be kind of harsh sometimes. Look, the truth is, pal, you know, that doesn't seem very gracious. And if I'm being gracious, that means I'm going to have to shade the truth a little in order to be kind or nice or forgiving. Think about forgiving for just one second. Okay, for a few minutes. Forgiving is to let someone's wrongdoing go. Now, how's that true? I can see how it's gracious, but how's it true? You know, there's only one way to get grace and truth together. And that is in the person of Jesus Christ himself. The only way to make grace fit together with truth is the cross. The sacrifice of Christ that makes truth and grace come together. So that he can be forgiving and honest. So that he can be corrective and full of grace. In fact, we find in the gospel, grace is the corrective. The thing that really motivates me to do right is the fact that God is not requiring me to do right in Christ. That Christ has already got me covered on the doing right. <laughs> that I have been granted the righteousness of his life so that on the scale of justice, I'm forgiven, 
and, and not just forgiven, but counted righteous, which is way past forgiven. Counted righteous. Well, that becomes something then I want to live up to. I want to exhibit that reality. And so I'm moved to actual behavioral day-by-day righteousness by grace. Grace and truth come together because of the work of Christ on the cross. So, how do we behave in this way in addressing the people around us with grace and truth? I want to just read these uh, passages that I have on the handout there. Colossians 4. Verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Okay. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. That, uh, that, now it's, now we're bringing in truth, right? Seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So grace and truth addresses the person, the one person that you're talking to at the moment, knowing that person and thinking carefully about how to season your speech. What this means is in our interactions as regular human beings, uh, the, the unamplified conversation is the one that really matters. What I mean is, it's not a broadcast. It's a conversation. Now, I'm not trying to deny that some broadcasting wouldn't be helpful, okay? We can announce truth as loud as possible, but also we're called upon to engage personally. That's grace and truth. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I read this text all the time because it's one of my favorite texts. Uh, We're going to read starting in verse 2. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the opening statement, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. In other, so he's saying, look, we don't, we don't try to sell you on this stuff. That's an important thing for a Christian to remember. We are not salesmen for Jesus. We are not going to tell you all the benefits and kind of keep the, some of this stuff to ourselves until later. We are not trying to convince you you ought to make a decision for Jesus. We are simply announcing the Word of God that we know ourselves. So we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Truth. It's a simple exposition of the person of Christ. Now, this text tells you that you might give that simple exposition of the person of Christ and people won't see what you see. 
So, pray. Uh, in Second Corinthians chapter 10, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, we've got to be careful to read the next verse. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. In other words, we want to take down claims, statements, arguments, opinions that deny the knowledge of God, that inhibit people from personally knowing God. But notice the arena of our operation. It's the arena of arguments and opinions. Okay, so, uh, sorry, I'm distracting myself. Uh, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. I believe this, all true thinking is Christian. In other words, I haven't really understood anything unless I understand it in relation to Christ. Because he is almighty God, the son, agent of all creation. If there's chemistry, it's his chemistry. And if I understand chemistry, but not understand it as his chemistry, well, I have a certain level of understanding, but I don't know it like it could be known. Everything exists in relation to Christ. So the truth, oh, well, that's just what he said, isn't it? I am the truth. The truth is personal, and it's personally located in the person of God in Christ. So uh, here we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In other words, I want to think about everything in a Christian way. When I go to do business or study business, I want to understand it in the light of Christ. If I'm going to be an engineer, I want to understand how things operate in the understanding of that those things are created by him. And they operate a certain way because he made them to operate a certain way. If I want to understand philosophy, I want to understand it as personally located in God, in Christ. No matter what I'm studying, no matter what the field is, true understanding is Christian understanding. Now, I can't explain to you how to make all those connections. That's a giant problem, but that's where the truth lies. And that's what we believe if we say we're Christians. We believe Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the Eternal One, who is God the Father's agent in all the creation and in our redemption. So it's a big deal. I take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. First Peter chapter 3. Wow, I'm not even getting to my outline. Verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Have no fear. 
nor be troubled. That's like, don't be afraid. Don't, e- don't even let it bother you. Those who would harm you for exhibiting the righteousness of Christ, or in response to your exhibit of the righteousness of Christ, don't be afraid. Now, is he telling you there are no such people? That there isn't anyone who would harm you for that? No, he's not telling you that. Jesus said the opposite of that. Look, they hated me. They're going to hate you too. Okay, have no fear. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, Christ the Lord, as holy. Holy here means set apart, unique. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So he's saying, okay, they're... In this world, operating as a Christian, true believer in, follower of Jesus, that could lead to trouble. Peter knew what he was talking about. He'd been in some of this trouble. That could lead to trouble, but don't be afraid. Don't even let it bother you. But be ready. Ready to do what? Give an answer. Respond, a defense, an apologia, an apologetic for the hope that's in you. How do you keep going in the face of this hardship? Well, what's your answer to that question? You have an answer to that question. That's the the point here. Have an answer to the question, how, how are you so hopeful? You know, if you, if you really let yourself believe these five lie things, it'd be depressing. How are you so hopeful? How am I so hopeful? Well, one way I'm so hopeful is I know that my life does not end when my life ends. I have the promise of resurrection to eternal life, to the actual healing of all the mortality of my body. Good heavens. Well, that's a great hope. So you could kill me. Uh, That doesn't have to bother me. I mean, it does bother me if someone threatens to kill me. But if I know who I am in Christ, I can maintain my hope in the face of that fear. Grace and truth. Okay, well, now we're going to hustle through the rest of this outline. When we say grace, how do I treat someone with grace? How do I make my case in grace? First of all, I'm not personally fearful. I'm confident. I'm confident in Christ and in the Bible, the Word of God. I'm not self-confident. I'm confident in Christ because He's got me. End of story. In Christ, I am secure. I'm utterly safe. I can be killed and not die. I'm confident in him and I'm confident in his word. Whatever the Bible promises to me, I believe as God's own word. And if God is not a liar, then I'm confident in what he says. So one of the things we should remember is We, a Bible-believing Christian, is in a position of strength. The biblical Christian worldview is not a new thing that was invented last week. It's been in the works from Adam's day. 
And it's made by God himself. It is absolutely sound, true, sure. That's my confidence. Uh, and so I operate from a position of strength. If you can't kill me, do I need to worry about what you think of me? I'm only worried about what you think of me for your sake. In other words, I might suppose I'm confronting someone who, had, who you know is clinging to one of these false beliefs. Why do I? Why do I care? Do I care whether they guard whether they have a put me in high esteem? No. Why do I care about what they might think of me? Only for what they might think. Only for their sake. I don't need to worry about my sake. I'm confident in God's grace. So the first thing here is about me. It's about my understanding of who I am in Christ. Then the second thing is be real. To operate in grace is to be real. What I mean here is I'm a real friend and I'm real friendly. I'm not fake friendly. I'm real friendly. I actually care. I will get together with you guys to love somebody. To actually take care of someone. To show the sacrificial love of Christ in the world. And we are in this together in the body of Christ, so I'm not just operating on my own here. You and me. Uh, we are real, a real friend and we're real friendly. We bless people who persecute us. And here's a big one. We listen before we talk. If I'm going to address someone, I want to address that actual person. And that means I need to know them. So I listen more than I speak. And I'm not trying to win an argument. I'm trying to win a person. Here's what happens when we try to win arguments. We lose. You might have had brothers and sisters as a child. I did. We used to argue a lot. We still could. We don't get together that much, but we could still argue. Disagree about politics. This is recorded, so I can't say much more about that. Uh, we used to argue a lot. You know what happens when you get in an argument? You know what matters in an argument? Who wins? Who wins is what matters. The truth is utterly irrelevant. It's only perhaps a useful tool in winning, maybe. But here's something I noticed when I was a kid arguing with my brothers or sisters. I would say something I knew was not true if it would help me win. That's what happens when you get in an argument. When you're trying to win an argument, winning the argument is what matters. The truth is not so important. And what we value is the truth, not the win. So what I'm trying to do is know somebody, understand somebody, listen before speaking. The Bible just commands us to do this. Be quick to hear, slow to speak. The third thing is pray. If grace is grace, then it's all from God. God is the source. So I want to talk to God about people before I talk to people about God. If I'm going to talk to someone about God, I want God to be in the conversation before I begin. I want God, I recognize what 2 Corinthians says, which is this person has a blindness that I cannot address. 
the Spirit of God could address it, so I need to ask. My primary role in helping people to see the truth is prayer. Prayer. So be confident, be real, pray. I need to recognize the spiritual nature of this task. I want to help someone find the truth. And God is the one who makes that happen. All right, the second part of our approach is truth. And I've kind of summarized that here as share and compare. And we're continuing in our idea of listening as much as we talk. So number one here is ask the big questions and listen to the answers. Ask the big questions and listen to the answers. Here are the big questions I'm referring to. Do you have any spiritual beliefs? It's a simple question. Do you have any spiritual beliefs? You know, people have spiritual beliefs. And they don't mind talking about them, usually. Ask them, what are your spiritual beliefs? It's very interesting to hear what people regard as spiritual. Sometimes people regard something as spiritual simply because they don't really understand it at all. (laughs) It's spiritual because it's a big mystery to them. And that's all they mean when they say spiritual, sometimes. Uh, In other words, do you have any beliefs that you can't properly justify? That's how they hear the question. Or do you think the world is more mystical than we sometimes make it out to be? How do you find meaning and purpose in life? That's another one of the big questions. You know, if life is as disconnected as these five lies tell us it is, it's really hard to find meaning. You have to make it up. So one of the answers to this question is, I don't know, I just make it up as I go. And that actually is the right answer under this worldly belief system. Just make it up. There isn't any actual meaning or any real purpose, so make something up, because you need to have something. I don't know how we fall for something we made up, but okay. What do you think about who Jesus was? You know, almost everyone believes Jesus was an actual person. What do you think about who he was? Obviously, some concept of Jesus has had a big impact in the world. Well, what do you think about who he was? Now, these are honest questions, and I'm looking to actually know the answer from someone. I'm not just talking so that I'll get a chance. I'm not asking just so I'll get a chance to talk. In other words, when you ask these big questions, You want to be gracious and take a real interest in what someone actually thinks. What do you think about the Bible? What do you think the Bible is? Obviously, again, it's a book that's had maybe the biggest impact of any book ever written on humanity. What do you think about it? What do you think it is? How do you think, where do you think it came from? Now, a lot of people these days have no idea. They just don't have an opinion about this. Have you ever, so one way to ask this question, have you ever thought about why the Bible is such an important book? How do you decide what to believe in? That's a very important question, because here's the thing. The honest answer to this question is, I really don't think about it that hard. Most people, the answer to the question, how do you decide what to believe in, what to trust yourself to, is, I really don't think about it. 
Most people do not live their lives with a lot of conscious thought to what they're doing. So one of the reasons you're asking the question is to just encourage someone to stop and think, to consider their own life and their situation in the universe in some kind of real terms. So how do you decide what to believe in? So the first aspect of operating by truth is to ask a big question and really listen to the answers. You want to know somebody. You want to care for somebody. You need to listen. Number two, take down false beliefs, but not the people who hold them. Okay, so we want to address the belief system without uh, putting down the person. In other words, one of the ways you do this is you sort of give them a little objectivity from their belief system. You say, well, did you ever think about X, Y, or Z? In other words, this thing you believe is not you. So I, I have beliefs. I'm not the sum of my beliefs. So I can address what's faulty with that way of thinking without telling, telling the person they're somehow faulty. In other words, I can start with the beginning point of we all have something to learn. Now, when I'm talking about the quality of a worldview, I see three basic attributes for that, for any particular worldview. Someone has a, a understanding of how things are. First of all, a good worldview is comprehensive. It, it accounts for things. It accounts for a lot of things. In fact, to be a worldview, it means it accounts for everything in one way or another. And the question here is how well does it account, does it allow for everything we know? Is it a thorough explanation? Does it leave out any of the any important aspects of reality or experience? So, for example, the idea that we're just the product of time and chance. Okay, well then, how do we account for our spiritual perceptions? One of the ways we become naturalists materialists is we just rule out the possibility of a whole realm of human experience. We just say, well, that's not real. And so I want to ask, on what basis do you claim that that's not real when everyone has it? What you're saying is, we just deny the reality of this whole vast array of human experience and understanding. Well, that seems like you ought to have a good reason. All right, so the question is, is it comprehensive? Does it account for things? Um, you know, this is like the old, uh, the old cosmonaut, I guess it was, who went out into space and said, well, I didn't see God. I guess he assumed if God was there, he could be seen from space. Well, no. If, you're, if, you're, if you claim this uh, materialistic limitation on reality, and then you claim because we can't observe the immaterial with our scientific instruments, I'm thinking, well, you need a different radio. Your problem is not that that frequency doesn't exist, but that your radio doesn't receive it. Anyway, so is it comprehensive? Second, is it consistent? In other words, does it contradict itself? Do you, is, does it come around and bite its own tail? Um, now, by the way, 
There are what we call, there is cognitive dissonance in any worldview, including a biblical Christian worldview, that we have to try to deal with and work out. But the question is, is it consistent, or does it have any such consistency that would make it implausible? Does it avoid self-contradiction? Is it internally coherent? The third C is, is it competent? In other words, can you live by it? Is it could you develop a, a sound ethical system from that particular point of view? Now, what we're going to do in this course is we're going to go through each one of these things that I'm calling the five lies, and we're going to address these things with these questions. So that's, that's to come. The third aspect in, uh, in this truth section and our approach of grace and truth is simply to exalt the truth, to claim what the Word of God claims, to let it out, to exalt the truth about God. First of all, God is there. God has spoken. God is holy. That means God is in a category of his own. And God is available in Christ. You know, one of the most amazing things about the Christian faith is the transcendence and imminence of God. That God is transcendent and present. It's really something. It's a unique view of God in the world. In Islam, God is transcendent, but not imminent. In many, uh, well, in the Christian faith, he's both. He is utterly above and beyond us, and he is incarnate as one of us. Like he sits at the same table as us. It's quite something. Well, so God is there, God is spoken, God is holy, God is available in Christ. It's, we exalt the truth about humanity. To me, this is like almost self-evident. Things are not the way they should be here in the human society. I had a, a seminary professor who said he thought the, the uh, Christian doctrine that was the easiest to prove is the doctrine of total depravity. Just look around. Uh, things are not, things are messed up. We've been trying this for thousands of years and we can't get it right. We can't figure out how to simply get along with the people next to us. Let alone the people in another country or with a different color of skin or speaking a different language or blah, blah, blah. Things are messed up. The reality about humanity is things are messed up. There's, the truth is we sin and we die. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, <clears throat> okay, i got to resist the temptation to take a long detour. <laughs> we exalt the truth about the gospel. Things are messed up, but Jesus sets things right. Jesus is in the process of setting things right, right this second. He has done nearly all of the work necessary to set things right. And he will complete the job. Also, Jesus is himself our peace. In him we are reconciled to one another and to God. So, this is our basic approach, an approach of grace and truth. We uh, are confident and real, as in really loving and 
we pray for the people we're talking to, we listen to them, we uh, share life with them, we make, we exhibit sacrificial love to them, we show grace, and we speak truth. We ask them what they really think about things that are really actually important. We help them figure out stuff they believe in that's faulty. And we share with them what we have discovered in Christ. It's pretty simple. Grace and truth. And so what we're going to try to do in each of our sessions about each one of these five lies is we're going to elaborate a little bit about that false belief, and then we're going to try to address it, and hopefully in ways that will be practical, like that you could actually use in conversation. And so one of the things we'll want to do is each we will want to discuss together where do we see these things or where do you hear this, uh, this false belief? What, how does it come out in a person where you would observe it? And then what, how would you address it with a person who said that or did that or whatever? So that's kind of where, where I'm hoping we can go.